How long have you been in the Navy? Oh, me blow me life. I'm Jamie Britt. And I'm Heath Britt. And together we are E14. We have 40 years of naval service. And each week we discuss a potpourri of topics, which we like to call smoke pit topics. These are real world topics that concern us, our marriage, and our Navy with a sailor twist. So join us each week as we dive into the deep end. Booyah! Hey everyone, welcome back to E14 Podcast. I'm Jamie Britt. And I'm Heath Britt. And together we are E14. The views and opinions expressed in this podcast are those of our own, not the United States Navy, or respective commands. So take it or leave it. Who do we have with us today? We have got Vic Ferrari, the coolest damn name in the world. Hey Vic, how you doing? Hey guys, how are you? And thank you for having me on your show. Oh, our pleasure, man. So tell us a little about yourself. Give us a nickel tour. My name is Vic Ferrari. Um, I'm a Bronx kid. I grew up in New York City. At age 20, I joined the New York City Police Department. I had a wonderful 20-year career. I worked in narcotics division. I worked in a plainclothes unit going after pickpockets and, and robberies in progress. And my last 10 years, I was a detective in the auto crime division, which covered chop shops, stolen vehicles, car rings, the mafia exporting stolen vehicles out of the country. And after I retired from the New York City Police Department, I got into writing and I my books are basically funny and unbelievable stories that happen along my way. So you live this life that's like fast and the furious kind of, you know, you're going, 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 and then you become a writer. That to me doesn't fit like, you know, it's just so calm being I a picture writing, being a calm profession or hobby. Uh, it is and it isn't. It is calm. You're right. I mean, there's no real adrenaline, right? You're sitting there putting paper, pen to paper or a finger to keyboard. But it's stressful because I, I, you know, I want I want if someone's going to spend ten dollars to buy one of my paperbacks, I, I don't want to give them crap. I, I, I want them to say to themselves, well, this was worth the money. Right. I'm not just yeah. wanting putting ridiculous content out there. So I mean, I comb through my books a million times before I send it off for a professional edit. Then I comb through it again. Um, it, in some ways, it's actually more stressful. Like with the NYPD, I knew what I signed up for. With right. writing, this is all uncharted territory for me. That's I can't I can't imagine because they say if you're going fast paced and you calm, that's a good way to start to get a heart attack. Yeah. So I was like, and that's what they say in the Navy, you know, when you retire, because you're go, 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 whatever, how many years you did, 20, 25, 30. And then you stop. And if you're a certain age, you could, yeah, it, you don't last long usually. Well, it's funny you should say that. So when I got, I got hired in 87 and I remember being told several times at seminars and things, the average life expectancy of a retired NYPD cop was 55 years old. So they said that the majority of guys dropped dead after five years. And I was like, well, that doesn't sound very good. <laughs> I've always taken care of myself. I was always in the gym, even as a kid. I've always ran. I continue to work out. So, but you're right. I mean, a 20 year career with in law enforcement or the military. I, I wrote in one of my books. It's, it's like a 20 year merry go round ride, and you got to mm-hmm. know when to get off that merry go round at a certain time because if you don't, the hobby horse is going to throw you on your head. You know what I mean? So yeah. After a while, it's time. You know. Either A, you outlive your own usefulness in, in that the cog the cog you're serving in that machine, or it's enough. It's enough right. for your mental and physical health to step off. When did you know it was time 
for you to step off that merry-go-round? I never thought about retiring. I mean, I, I was having so much fun. And probably about a, two years before I retired, because I did 20 on the nose, things were changing. Um, I was in the same place 10 years. And although I liked it, things around me were changing. My friends were retiring or going off to work in different units. Supervisors were moving on. They were getting promoted. And everybody outlives their usefulness. I mean, I, I'd like to think I was very good at what I did. But after a while, new supervisors come in with different opinions and, and, and different. they want you to do different things. And the New York City Police Department was changing. And in my opinion, not for the better. So I said, you know what? Shame on me if I'm going to hang around here and I don't like it. It's like, you know, sitting in a pool and somebody pissed in it. Get up and leave. <laughs> yeah. and that's what I did. After 20 years, I yeah. just said, you know what? It's enough. I can figure out something else to do with myself. That, that's a great story. That reminds me a lot of myself after retiring from the Navy. I wasn't ready. I was, I, I was like, what do I do next? It's weird. <laughs> it is. It's like you're looking weird. over your shoulder because like in the military or the police department, right? Well, the, the police department is a paramilitary organization, right? You're answerable to supervisors. There's checks and balances. Now, all of a sudden, you're on your own. You're like a free man. It's like getting paroled. And it's yeah. like the music stops. It's like musical chairs. The music stops. And now, where am I going to find my chair in life? Mm-hmm. Right. I, I get it. It's it's. It's a weird, it's a weird feeling, but look, man, you were a NYPD cop in the biggest city. One, actually, what I think number it's the number two biggest city in the world, New York City. First of all, where was you? Where's your passion come for serving? Because you guys do serve, no doubt about it. And when you got there and you and you got in this big city and you and you're packing and you're wearing the uniform, hey, did that blow your mind? That's a couple oh, things definitely. I the reason I wanted to become a police officer was when I was a kid, um, my grandfather broke his leg in a snowstorm. I was about five and the cops brought him home. And, you know, I remember at five looking up at these two men in these blue uniforms and every boy gets fixated on the gun. And I was like, who are these guys? Like, where'd they come from? And then a couple of years later, the police station was around the corner from the local movie theater. So when my mom would take my brother and I on Saturdays to catch a matinee, I would run up to the police cars and like stick my face in the window and look at like <laughs> the hats and what equipment they had in there. I'd watch the cops standing in front of the police station with their hands on the butt of their guns, like how they interacted with each other. Yeah. And I was hooked. Like I knew what I wanted to do by seven years old. I mean, in NYPD law disorder, I, I tell a story about I was 10. My friends and I used to sneak into the post office and steal wanted posters off the wall. And we were walking around the neighborhood with a wanted poster with some guy wanted for a bank robbery in Kansas City, <laughs> like looking around for the guy, like, you know. So like collecting baseball cards, do. huh? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. Right. Exactly. And uh, I still might have a couple of them. So, you know, I knew what I wanted to do. And when I got out of high school, my parents wanted to kill me because I didn't want to go to college and I wasn't eligible to become a cop yet. I had to be 20 to take the test. So it was a rough couple of years in the household. You know, I went for menial jobs. And then luckily for me, I passed the police exam and, you know, went into the police academy and had a wonderful 20 year career. That's, that's a, so your your uh, your whole future was banked on that test. For the yes. police test the whole time. You never had a side plan or, or a side hustle. No, my father wanted to kill me. He he, <laughs> he came home from work early. Where I'll never forget. It was the day that. It's a tragedy, but it's it's a funny story. The day the Challenger blew up, I'm watching television, and my father comes through the door early, 
And I'm like, what is he doing home early? Like my father never left, left work early. And I go, dad, the challenger blew up. He goes, yeah, I know. I heard. Get dressed. I go, why? He goes, we're taking a ride. I go, where? He goes, I'm taking you out to Queens. I'm going to sign you up for the electrician's exam. I go, but the challenger blew up. He goes, if you don't put your sneakers on, you're going to blow up. <laughs> so he drove me out to Queens and I had to take that electric, the electrician's exam. And I, I purposely failed it because I had no interest in being an electrician. He wanted to right. choke me because he knew somebody. If I passed the exam, he could have got me an apprenticeship. <laughs> I just screwed that up. But I knew what I wanted to do. Yeah. That, wow. That's that's huge. Yeah. So what kind of background did you come from? Is your dad pretty hardcore? This yeah, oh, definitely. yeah, my dad had a rough life. He was a butcher, um, worked with his hands his entire life. Um, my mom was a, a housewife. Well, we were a lower middle class family. I mean, we lived in a row house off the side of the Cross Bronx Expressway, but I was happy. I mean, we didn't have any money, but I didn't know we were poor or lower middle class. I mean, everybody yeah. in my neighborhood was basically the same. Some had a little more than others, but for the most part, you know, no one was living high on the hog in the Bronx, at least not where I lived. So, you know, my parents scrimped and saved. They put me through Catholic high school, which I, I, I'm writing about now, but I, I wanted no part of it. And that was probably one of the best things that ever happened to me because I needed it. But, um, you know, I mean, I, I've, I've had a wonderful life. You know what I mean? I have no regrets. I mean, my childhood, my police career and after post-police career. And, you know, I'm lucky enough to write books and talk to people like you guys that are nice enough to put me on your platforms. So, to, so take us through it, because I'm picturing this young 20 year old, wide eyed, thinks that uh, policemen are bulletproof and all of these things that take me through like the beginning of your career, because I'm thinking that you were walking out thinking you're Billy Badass okay. <laughs> in New York. Well, yeah, you, you go through six months of the police academy, which I wasn't a fan of the police academy because in New York, a lot of the instructors were only a couple of years older than us. They had no real street time. They were hiding in the police academy so they could study for the sergeant's exam. You know, it's tough. It's it, it's tough to take someone serious. That And you guys were in the Navy, so I'm sure you had a ton of training. You could sniff out someone that's never done what they're trying to teach you to do. You know, and it's tough taking someone seriously that's telling you you got to do this, this, and this, and you're saying to yourself, this guy never had any street time. He never put right. his hands on anybody. He was never in a fight with anybody. So I was kind of, I, I was a little confused when I got out of the police academy, but back then what they would do is in a field training unit, each zone or division would get like a hundred rookie cops. And what they would do is every day they'd sprinkle you out on foot posts around the South Bronx. And it was baptism by fire. It was like getting thrown in the water and learn how to swim. I mean, I remember like one of my first days they put me, I was in the South Bronx on Fulton Avenue and there was a row of abandoned six-story buildings, just abandoned. And, yeah, you know, watch this block. And I'm standing there like, what the fuck? I got junkies <laughs> walking by. I got crackheads walking by, right, with shit that they stole looking to sell it. When the light would go down, when the sun was going down, the sun would go through, like, the abandoned buildings. You'd see, like, crackheads in there, like, cooking <laughs> and eating and shit. I'm like, what the fuck is this? You know what I mean? Like, I had no right. idea what I, yeah, it's like everything I thought I knew from the movies yeah. and everything else. Oh, there was a tremendous learning curve. You you you're, you have to get an ear for that radio. I remember a couple of times there was shit going on on my post, and I just wasn't, listen, I wasn't in tune to the radio. My sergeant or an old time would pull up and go, what the fuck? He goes, I got to come in. He goes, you got a job here. And I'm like, huh? 
I had to learn. I had to learn north, south, east, and west. You get into a couple of foot chases, and you don't know which direction you're going, and you got the cavalry going one way, and you're going the other way. I mean, you get yourself hurt really bad, and then the right. cops get yeah. pissed off because they're like, "Why'd you say you were going east on on Fulton Avenue when you were going west?" You know what I mean? So there was a lot to learn. Wow, I never really thought about that. I always but, wondered that, though. Yeah. In the movies, when you see the cops do it, hey, traveling east on First Avenue, how the fuck do they know that? <laughs> right. Well, they got two a chases, right? You got a foot chase and you got a car chase. Right. So with a foot chase, uh, it, a foot chase is definitely more difficult because you have to have, you got to know how to talk into that radio when you're running, your adrenaline's going, and you do know exact have to... You're doing everything. You're chasing the guy. You're skirting. You know, I used to curse at the guy. Hey, I'm, you know, yell all sorts of shit to get him to at least stop or turn around. You know right. what I mean? Plus, you're, you're yelling into the radio. You start learning by the way the sun comes up and the way the sun goes down. You know, yeah. that's basically how I figured it out. Wow. Now, with car chases, the dirty little secret in the NYPD is we're not allowed to chase stolen cars. We do. But that's <laughs> the NYPD's way of covering themselves. So... If you get into a car, well, back then, I don't, I'm, I'm out of the game 15 years, but back then, if you got into a car chase, right, as long as the bad guy didn't get hurt, civilians didn't get hurt, you didn't get hurt, no one would say a word. But God forbid, like you're chasing a stolen car and, and he mows over somebody, you, you're fucked. I mean, right. you're going to exactly. get sued, you're going to get suspended. But, you know, the reality is, what, what are you going to let everybody go? Yeah. So, when you would put over, a, so in a car chase, it's the it's the operator, the passenger of the car that's putting over the chase. So the driver is, you know, doing the, the the heavy lifting. He's chasing this guy. It was an art. You had to know how to put that foot chase, uh, that car chase over, and you had to say it calm, and you had to say we're following. But the sergeant and the dispatcher would know you're chasing because they could hear the sirens in the background and they could hear the distance. You know, mm -hmm. if I'm saying. I'm on 174th and Webster and 30 seconds later, I'm at 157th street and Webster. It's like I traveled over 20 blocks in 30 seconds. I'm doing 80 miles an hour. Yeah. So then we come over the radio and start telling you to call the chase off and they're covering them themselves. But if the chase goes on after they call, call it off and someone gets hurt, they're going to cut your balls off. So it's like, uh, they won't say nothing until something goes wrong. Kind of like, no, yeah. they'll tell you to stop. I mean, first the sergeant will start getting over the radio, terminate pursuit. You pretend like you don't hear it. The duty <laughs> captain will come over the air. He'll say terminate pursuit. You really don't, you know. Guys start keying the microphone, which is dangerous, but guys will start keying the microphone so the supervisors can't come over the air to cancel it. <laughs> it's a whole fucking thing, man. <laughs> you guys are in the mafia, man. That's a mafia yeah, shit. I, I can relate because I was an air traffic controller for, you know, um, my Navy, the first part of my Navy career. So I can relate to like, you know, keying up over people and acting like you don't hear. That's good. Stuff. Yeah. <laughs> it's dangerous. Like I never did it, but like you'd hear them stepping on, you'd hear them stepping on the, the duty captain, the sergeant and the dispatcher who I guess is like has ultimate rule or if it was Stratego would be number one. He she would start like stepping on everybody. You know what I mean? Like knock that shit off. Mm -hmm. that, yeah, no, I get it. So what is some, I want to talk about a story I read in your book, one of the stories. I thought it was funny because you do, you describe it really well in there. You, you set up for the, you set everybody up for the punchline, whatever, you know. It's, it's I great. try. It's great. It's great. It's really good. So this is on the book, NYPD Law and Disorder. 
So you you go see this 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 couple upstairs. They're fighting. She wants the dude out, but he's on the rent. He's on the rental agreement. Yeah, and, and then you say basically at the end of the day, they said they bribed you. And that dude Tony, man, I would have slapped the shit out of Tony. Oh, well, you talking about the story where the captain dragged the guy out of the building by his ear? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That, that was, was that's hilarious. a funny story. So I'm a rookie cop, and me and this other guy have an adjourning foot post, and he goes off on his lunch hour, and this woman flags me down, and you know she's a rough looking woman. She brings me into her apartment. They're using a cardboard box as a fucking coffee table. She's got dirty sheets stapled above the windows. She's smoking cigarettes, and she goes, "I want him out." And, so I said, all right, is he physically abusive? No, but he's a bum. He doesn't pay the rent. And I go, you got the lease? His name's on the lease. Well, he's not physically abusing her. He hasn't threatened her. He's a deadbeat. Well, you know, mm-hmm. I, you, know you should pick who, you, who you're hanging out with better, I guess. But there was nothing I could do. I referred her to landlord tenant court and I left. So then I go to my lunch hour. When I come back, the, the other cop that had my post, he was paranoid he comes up to me and he says, you know, you got a problem. I go, what happened? He goes, did you handle a dispute with a woman? I said, yeah. He goes, well, I ran into her. And she said, after you left, the boyfriend came back and told her, stop calling the cops. I already gave that. I paid that guy off not to arrest me. So I said, well, that didn't happen. He wasn't even there when I went over there. I mean, he was 21 <laughs> years old. I'm going to start taking fucking bribes from some shithead that lives in the apartment with a cardboard. Yeah, how much money did he have? He had a fucking cardboard box as a coffee table. So anyway, <laughs> um, I, uh, I told him, oh, this is nonsense. And he goes, well, you got to call the Internal Affairs Division. And that's the thing. In the police academy, I mean, it's like they, they don't stop about police corruption. You got to call Internal Affairs. You're going to get fired. So... He convinced me into calling internal affairs on myself and internal affairs almost hung the phone up on me because I'm, I'm so the detective goes, let me get this straight. You want to report misconduct on yourself? And I'm like, yeah, he goes, yeah, just sit tight. And he hangs up the phone. So I'm like, sit tight. Like, what does this mean? Like, is this going to be like the firm? Like Wilford Brimley's going to pull up in a car and drag <laughs> me away. You know what I mean? Like, so about a half hour later, this Crown Vic, unmarked Crown Vic pulls up and there's this old meaty captain in the car in full uniform. You know, he's got like that big meaty face. He looks like a canned ham. White hair <laughs> and a red-faced Irishman. He pulls up and he goes, who the fuck called IAB? So I raise my hand. He goes, get the fuck in the car. So I get in the car. And he goes, take me to where this allegation took place. So I go to the building and, and he's like, what the, why would you call those rat bastards on yourself? She's talking about the internal affairs division. I go, I, I don't know. I said, the other guy told me, he goes, why would you listen to that jerk off? He's got 15 minutes on the job more than you. You're listening to him. He goes, don't get out of this fucking car. And he, he grabs a clipboard and he goes into the building. And I'm sitting there like, well, I'm going to get fired. I mean, you know, I, I started an avalanche on myself. About five minutes later, the captain comes out of the building with this guy that I've never seen before, and he's dragging him by his ear. And he shoves the guy's fucking head in the window, and he goes, is this the cop you said you paid off? And the guy's like, I told you I made it up. Jesus fucking Christ, please, please, I'm sorry. And he's shaking the guy's head like a rattle. He goes, listen to me. Because if you fucking call, he goes, don't call, don't fucking bother me with this nonsense. And he goes, if you ever fucking make a bullshit allegation about one of my cops again, I'll pull your other fucking ear off. And he kicks the guy in the ass and the guy leaves. And I'm just standing <laughs> like, what the fuck? 
Like they told us to call internal affairs on ourselves, and now this guy is just like. So we get in the car and we start driving around. He goes, where's that other asshole that told you to do this? So it's an Italian neighborhood and the cop actually was Italian. And we pull up to the corner and this young Italian cop that got started all this is eating a cannoli. He goes, hey, Mussolini, get the fuck over here. So the other cop walks over and he starts abusing him. And he goes, the two of you had better figure this out. He goes, I'm not coming back here again to clean up your mess. And I says, well, thank you. And he drove off and it was like, you know, I realized, yes, you should report corruption, but I, I think the chapter is called Corruption and Common Sense. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yes. But I mean, they, they made every they made everybody paranoid in the police academy. So I called internal affairs on myself. I still kick myself in my, in the, in my ass to this day. Over <laughs> that, that is so funny. The guy didn't believe he thought it was a prank call. The guy, the detective you're talking to over IA. He's like, are you serious? <laughs> yeah. The guy goes, wait, let me get this straight. You call it internal. He was like going to hang up on me. Hey, that's prank off. Wow. That's hilarious, man. <laughs> that that is funny. And, and listeners, this uh Vic has tons of stories like that in his books. I I have NYPD Law and Disorder, but there's so many damn funny stories in there. And you tell them well, man. You do a great, great job Thank on you. that. So what got you into literature? I don't think we ever asked you. Why'd you go from one extreme to the other? What <sighs> what passion do you have? When I retired from the NYPD, I moved to Florida. I got a job with a small police department down here and the department was great. But, you know, at 41, 42, whatever I was when I took that job, I I was coming from a totally different police department and, you know, they put you back on the road. So I went from being a detective for the last 10 years, investigating organized crime. Now I'm dealing with disputes and DUIs and stupidity. So I went from being, you know, a detective to being on an episode of Reno 911. <laughs> you know what I mean? I was like, oh, I don't fuck. Officer mean. Dangle. Were you, were yeah, you Officer yeah, Dangle? Exactly. Yeah, I'm ch- <laughs> right. I'm chasing white trash, hiding in the back of kiddie pools and backyards and fucking disputes at two o'clock in the morning. I'm like, fuck this. So I retired again. I re-retired. And I'm like, I got to do something. And my friends encouraged me. They go, you got so many funny stories. You should write this shit down. I'm like, I guess I could. And then. I just started writing a series of short stories and then I started stringing them together. And then I, I figured out how to self-publish and you know, the rest is history. Damn. That's, that's good. So I've got a question for you about when you were a cop in Florida, is the Florida, Florida man, a real thing. The what? The Florida man. You ever heard the Florida man? It's just the headlines. The headlines are crazy as hell. Are Are they off in Florida? A little off in Florida. It's, you know, now that I'm down here, we laugh about that. It's like, well, I, you know what it is? Florida is very transient now. You know, you've got the locals, the homegrowns and everybody. But for the most part, I'd say like 90 percent of Florida is from somewhere else. And a lot of people come down here on spring break or they just think, well, it's warm down there. It's a good idea, but they've got no plan. Right. It's like, yeah, the weather's great, but. They've got no plan. And it just seems like, yes, there are a lot of people here that seem to get themselves in ridiculous and unbelievable situations. Are that, I mean, like, is the environment there in Florida that you would want to, I don't know, uh, stickle pickle up your nose? I don't understand what, what crazy causes this. Florida people, I, you know, there's a show called Florida Men on Florida Men. Uh, yeah, one and, of our and, favorite podcasts. And they yeah. read the headlines. Some of the crap they read that have, they read the headlines of Florida. Yeah. And some of the stuff they read, I'm like, there's no way. There's absolutely no way. Who would do that? Well, there's a way. It happens. <laughs> I mean, 
Yeah, a couple of years ago, you had that guy that ate bath salts and he started chewing yeah. the guy's face. Yeah, the zombie yeah. guy. You know, yeah. You've always, you can count on a female teacher having sex with her students. Like you can set your watch to it. You know what I mean? That shit goes on all the time. You know, um, we got a really good sheriff in Polk County. I actually got to meet him. His name is Grady Judd. Very law and order. His department sets up a sex thing like that. Chris Hansen used to do to like catch a predator. Right. Mm -hmm. I mean, he could set, he could set one of those cases up. They nail a hundred people, you know, crossing state lines to, to, you know, solicit sex with an, with a minor. They could have, have the headlines in the paper, big splash. They could start that case up 15 minutes later and get another hundred people. Wow. He does a really good job with that. Yeah. Um, That's, that's crazy. So, you know, Vic, um, a little bit about us, we're about to move to New York. Oh yeah. Buffalo area. And it's funny that you came from New York down South and (laughs) Are we dumb? <laughs> we'll talk off air. <laughs> yeah, but we're military. I'm retired military. Yeah. Jamie's still in. God bless her soul. And and I'm I'm the dependent now. I just run, yeah. I just follow her around. I just said I wanted an adventure. I wanted something different from the South. So that's why we you can try that. Florida. Yeah, yeah. We're about two hours from Florida. We're not very far. Yeah. Anymore. Oh, you're near the Panhandle. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we're near the Panhandle. Yeah. So what is that? Were you were you more southern or central Florida? No, I'm you're South Florida. Florida. Oh, really? Oh, nice. Okay. You went full full retard. You went all the way down. Yeah. <laughs> so you're like I said, you did 20 plus years. You had such a a variety of jobs you did of uh, responsibilities. What what was the most difficult one out of all the ones you listed off earlier? That you oh, pound your that you wanted to pound your head. Which side though was it? Was it narcotics? What was it? Chop, you know, organized. Yeah, no, chop, I would chop. say narcotics. Um, and remind me to tell the Jesse Jackson story after this, because that's a difficult it. one. I got a good <laughs> Jesse Jackson story. So what, uh, you know, I, I'm a rising star. I've got five years on. I'm in a plainclothes unit. I'm making 80, 90 arrests a year. And everybody that Giuliani had just come into New York and was beefing up the narcotics division. And they were taking groups of hundreds of people to go into the narcotics division. And everybody's like, you got to go to narcotics. You're going to love narcotics. Everybody's pissing in my ear. So, all right, I'll go to narcotics. And I hated it. Um, it, it the, it's buy and bust every day. So you go out with a team of about six, seven guys, a couple of undercovers. The undercovers step off. They buy their drugs. They give a description. You roll up. You grab two, three guys, a van pulls up, you throw the bad guys in a cargo van, you go to the next set, you lock up three, four guys. Yes, there's a lot of foot chases. It's exciting. But when in narcotics in New York, especially in, in the late 80s, early 90s, you're dealing with the dregs of society. I mean, the people selling drugs, you're, you're locking up the street people. So it's it's homeless people. And I mean, I always had a cold because these people are living outdoors. Their, their clothes is damp and moldy. They smell like cigarettes. I always had a cold. You're always dealing with people where you had to wear gloves. You're dealing with, you know, her- hardcore heroin addicts. So they got open sores on their body. They're shooting between their fingertips and in their neck. Oh, wow. You know what I mean? They're on death's door. You're always afraid of getting hepatitis C or getting stuck with a needle and getting AIDS. Oh, so gosh. you're always like, listen, you know, you're talking to people that are half asleep. Listen, mm-hmm. if you got a needle, fucking tell me now. Don't let me don't tell me later. I didn't enjoy it. And it just, you were either running around chasing people, which was fine, 
or you're in court testifying because they're all felony cases. So people are going to jail for this. So you're either in court and, and, or, 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 or running around chasing people and you could never catch up on your paperwork. It just, it just never stopped. And I said, you know what? It's not mentally challenging to me. It's the same thing. Rinse and repeat. So I took a step backwards. I went back to patrol, which was actually unheard of in those days. Everybody was looking at me like something had happened. It didn't. I just didn't like it. And I was always a car guy. I grew up in a neighborhood where people were always stealing cars. I worked in a gas station. So I knew a shitload of stuff about cars. And I got into the auto crime division. And, you know, from there, that set my trajectory. I went back up. So it was like a stock. I took a dip in narcotics and then I went back up. Wow. But the Jesse Jackson story. Yeah, I was about to say, so what's Jesse Jackson? (laughs) That's in, what book is that? NYPD Through the Looking Glass. So I'm a rookie cop. Not long after that captain pulled that guy by the ear. And Jesse Jackson is running for president. And he's going to give a speech at this community center in Co-op City. So they, you know, they grab rookies to do all the grunt work. So they grabbed five or 10 of us. They brought us over to this community center. And my job that day was posted at the back door of this community center. And my sergeant goes, hey, Ferrari, don't let anybody come through this back door. I said, okay. 20 minutes later, a lieutenant comes by. Ferrari, good. You got that door? Yeah. I don't care who it is. Don't let them through that door. So it just went up the line. It was a sergeant. It was a lieutenant. Finally, the chief of the Bronx shows up and he goes, hey, do you enjoy being a cop? I said, yes, sir. He goes, I don't care if Jesus Christ himself comes through that door. You push him out. Do you understand me? I said, yes, sir. Right. You know, about an hour later, the radios are coming. The Secret Service is coming because he had Secret Service protection. Jesse Jackson's coming. Jesse Jackson's coming. Right. I'm watching that door like waiting for Jack Ruby to come through it. You know what I mean? Like, I'm like fucking about 10 minutes later, the door... The door's jiggling. It's obvious someone's got the key, right? I'm trying to hold the door shut. The door flies open, right? The sunlight comes in, and Jesse Jackson's standing in the doorway. <laughs> all, like, you heard, all you heard was, falling. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm just standing there like, and he goes, how you doing, young man? He sticks out his hand. Guy had big fucking hands. Like, my <laughs> hand disappeared into his, right? And I'm like, like I write in the book, what was I supposed to do? keep the guy out that's having the fundraiser out of his own fundraiser. I got the fuck out of his way. He walked by with the secret service and a parade of people come walking in. I shut the door. Right. My sergeant couldn't stop laughing. He goes, Ferrari, you're going to go a long way. He goes, even though you got told not to let anybody in, he goes, you did the right thing. So I I think that's something about common sense in, in uh, NYP, uh, NYPD through the looking glass. But yeah, I was Told, don't I don't care who comes in. It was Jesse Jackson. Well, was it a setup where they wanting you to be like, no, sir, you can't come. Through. <laughs> no, I don't Jackson. think it was a setup. Oh. I just think that his security detail went to the wrong door, or maybe the NYPD was told wrong. Oh wow! You know, uh, the the police the police force, especially NYPD, kind of reminds me of the militaries at times, especially back in in the day when when I first started and you first started. It was a it was a boys club, mm-hmm. and I know in the Navy. They had so many pranks we used to play on each other, especially we'd fuck with the new guy. Is that a, is that a thing over there or was when you were a oh, kid? Oh, yeah. And um, uh, which book? I think, uh, yeah, NYPD Through the Looking Glass. There's a whole chapter on practical jokes. Like, So when I was a detective, I was going – when you're a detective, right, you're working in a room with 20 guys or girls that are detectives – 
everybody's a trained observer. So you can't, if you do anything, they notice, they're going to notice, right? So one day it was getting close to six o'clock. I was going home. I had a date. So I went up to my locker and I changed my slacks. So one of the guys noticed. And when I went up to get a cup of coffee, he took a glass of ice water and soaked my chair. <laughs> so I sit in it. I get the wet ass. Everybody's laughing. I go, that's pretty funny. He goes, yeah, yeah, yeah. I go, All right. I go upstairs. I put my other pants on. I go back downstairs. Around the corner from our office was a pet store. So I bought 100 crickets. You know, they use them to feed snakes. The yeah. kid right, put it right. in a plastic bag. I got a Slim Jim. I went into our parking lot and I opened up the son of a bitch's car. I opened up the bag of crickets and I dumped it in the back seat of his car. <laughs> Shut the door. And then we watched out the window as he started driving away. He slams on the brakes and he jumps out of the car because he had like fucking, they were like locusts swarming him in the car, right? <laughs> so he's trying to get him out of the car. I went home. The son of a bitch had to sell the car. It took a month. Like he would put bug bombs in there and shit and then they would die. But apparently didn't get them all. And they start breeding. It was like a Stephen King movie. So he had to fucking sell the car. <laughs> but we used oh to do God. other shit. Like when I was on patrol, we would wait until someone went on their meal hour. And then we use a Slim Jim. We'd get into their police car and we'd remove all the, um, the air vents. And we'd pour cornstarch down the air vents and put the air vents back and put the AC on full. So when they got in the car and started it, they'd get Ooh. poof with the cornstarch. <laughs> That's a good one. Can you imagine having to make an arrest? <laughs> no, no they go back upstairs and get changed, but they were pissed. <laughs> oh, so what was, I know you must've seen 20 years in the busiest city in the world. Uh, you must've seen a lot of shit, man. I can't imagine all right. the stuff you've witnessed or had to do or had to go through. What was, is there something in your mind that you will never be able to get out? That's something that happened while you were, you were doing your thing. I don't know. You know, I, I've been asked plenty of times, like, what's the worst thing you ever saw? Or, right. you know, uh, how does this affect you? I, I'd like to think I'm pretty happy go lucky. I mean, yeah, I have memories of things that happen that are bad, but I I guess like I, I've been able to compartmentalize things. You know what I mean? That like I know they're there. It's not like I try to block something out, but I, it just it doesn't bother me after a while. Like it's like at first it's like, holy shit. But the way I look at it, you know, like a homicide victim was someone that really gets seriously hurt. It, it's not me. Thank God. And I just move on with my life. But Oh yeah. Um, I walked in on a, um, I'll tell you a quick gory story. So uh, one night it was, a, it was a slow night. It was raining. It was like in, a, in February in the early nineties and comes over as a dispute multiple calls. So you hear multiple calls, the neighbor, everybody, the neighbors are calling. It's just not the people that are having the dispute. It's multiple calls. So one car starts going, another car starts rolling. And it was, it was a slow night. So I said, fuck it. Let's just go over there. Was, we're bored. Basically yeah. the first car gets there and um, they get out and it was like uh, garden apartments, like three stories high. And when they got out, they heard screaming coming out the window. So what these guys did was instead of, going around to the front door. They they were young guys. They climbed the fire escape. I think it was on the second or third floor. Well, when they climb, they, they look in the window, the woman's on the ground covered in blood. And there's a guy on top of her with a kitchen knife decapitating her. Oh, oh gosh. So yeah. they start screaming into the radio, you know, central, there's a guy with a large knife. He's, he's stabbing this woman to death. Right. So now where everybody's like the cavalry's coming. 
So we pull up and you hear boom, boom, boom. We pulled up on the other side of the building. I hear shots fired. So we're putting over shots fired. We go up the stairs. We're pounding on the door, pounding on the door. And we're kicking in the door now. And now we hear the two cops screaming in the apartment. They're in the apartment. We hear them screaming, don't shoot, don't shoot. It's, you know, I'm not going to say their names, but it's us. It's us. Just don't shoot. Mm -hmm. So they opened the door and it was, it was, it, that was probably the worst thing I ever saw. I mean, you've got a woman laying there and this is gone. I mean, basically her neck, her head was hanging on by her spine. She had a hole in her head and her mouth was wide open and her eyes were open. It, it was terrible. And he was dead. What had happened was when they started pounding on the window, he grabbed the knife and turned his attention to them. He threw open the window and he started lunging at him with the butcher knife. And they emptied their 30, we had 38s back then. They emptied their 38s into the guy. So he started stumbling backward. And when he fell, and I, I believe this to this day, what my friend told me was when he stumbled backwards and when he fell, he said, when his hand hit the ground, he said the knife went, you know, tumbling into the next room. And all my buddy could think of is, you know, he's not even, he's not thinking clearly that this guy just killed a woman. He's yeah. thinking, wow. They're going to think that because the knife's in the kitchen, I shot an unarmed man. That's, what he's about. Yeah, like, that's how your mind thinks. Right. So we're walking around the apartment. And I mean, there was so much blood in that apartment because she had basically bled out. And, you know, you had the gunshot victim was bleeding out. He, he died on the scene. But like you were sopping at your feet was sticking. You know what I mean? Yeah. So that was probably yeah. one of the worst things I ever I ever saw. That's straight out of a horror movie. Yeah. And then you go home. Here's a wild one. Here, that. So huh? we're at the hospital, right? Later on, I'm at the hospital with the two cops that, that shot this guy. They're getting checked out. And he noticed because, you know, cop pants, like the NYP doesn't send you to a tailor. Like when I was a cop down here, they send you to a tailor for your measurements. I thought I was a runway model. NYPD, you're just happy the goddamn things fit. So <laughs> if you look at cops in New York, most of their pants are baggy because they're not going to pay for the alterations. Right. When the guy swung with the knife, he sliced his pants. He just missed hitting his thigh. Ooh. Could have hit his femoral artery. Wow. Just missed him. Wow. Dang. Thank goodness for baggy pants. Yeah. So, yeah. Hey, hey, thank goodness for MIPD being cheap and not getting our shit done right. <laughs> yeah, that's a long little skinny jean. Yeah. <laughs> so you told us, you know, the wildest stories and the uh, Well, I had, a, I had another one more oh, question for him. Actually, I just... I know what fence I lean on, but all this bullshit about, about, you know, downsizing police forces and, mm -hmm. you know, police officers down, downsizing the many. Obviously I'm pretty sure I, I know how you feel about it. I, I can't yeah. wait to get your thoughts, but what is the long-term effect of that? By, by a vet, old vet looking in, you know, could you see something besides it's just trying to disintegrate the society? I mean, it, it's, you know, I, I laugh. When people say, well, you know, it's it's the cops and their relationship with the community. Well, I find it interesting that the same people that call 911 every 15 minutes are the same people that complain about the cops. This this is what you got to realize. The police have a parent-child relationship to a degree, right? Someone calls the police. You don't call the cops when you're having a party, right? You call the cops when you have a problem. And the cops only have so long to be there to mediate a situation. So you guys are having a fight. She thinks she's in the right. You think you're in the right, right? The cop is going to make a ruling, either uh, even if it wasn't domestic, say it was in a store, 
either the store owner is going to be pissed because the cop's going to see it as the customer's way, or the customer is going to be pissed because the cop sees it the owner. It's it's a no win job, right? But it's the same people that can't get out of their own way that call the cops every fifteen minutes, and when they don't get their way, the police are a bunch of scumbags. Yeah, I think I just see a I see a a bad thing, you know, because people have already been quitting. Cops have quit because of the bullshit. And, and the well, I think it's done by design. I, I think it, I think it's done to weaken the fabric of our society. And who are you going to call? Ghostbusters? Right. You, you know what I mean? It's um, nobody wants the police until they need them there. Yeah, that's true. true. That's true. I was going to ask about the the crazy, the funniest thing you've ever seen, like where you just broke out a character and just started busting up laughing, because I know that probably has happened. Oh, God. Yeah. I mean, all the time. I mean, shit used to just happen all the time. Sometimes, you know, criminals would say something in the middle of an arrest and you just start laughing. So, so there was this cop. We used to call El Diablo and he was Irish. <laughs> The Spanish guys called him El Diablo because if you worked with him, you would either convert to Christianity, join AA, or you were going to get divorced. He was just a big partier. <laughs> it was like he never got in trouble. We used to say, this motherfucker's got to have the Prince of Darkness running interference for him because he never got in trouble, like all the crazy shit. But the wildest story with him is he's drinking in Midtown one time in a bar. He's talking to these two floozies. And one of those guys, they're called handsome cab operators. Those are the guys that ride those horse and carriages around Central Park for 400 mm-hmm. bucks. You know yeah. what I mean? You get yeah. to see Central Park. So one of these handsome cab operators steps into the bar. He's got his fucking top hat on and his felt, you know, vest. <laughs> the vest. And as he walks by El Diablo and the girls, El Diablo goes, hey, you mind if I take Seabiscuit for a ride? <laughs> so the, the handsome cab operator sees that he's a drunk. He goes, yeah, sure. And he goes to the bathroom. So El Diablo goes, come on, ladies, let's go. He's an old friend of mine. So they go out in front of the bar. El Diablo loads the two floozies into the in, in, into the horse and carriage. He removes the blocks. Giddy up. And the fucking horse starts walking away, right? <laughs> He's drunk. He's from the Bronx. He doesn't know how to ride a fucking horse and carriage, right? <laughs> so at first, the horse is like making rights and lefts. And then the horse realizes this guy's not, this guy's an asshole. He's not a handsome cab operator. So the horse says, fuck this. I'm going to get some oats. I'm going back to the barn. So the horse starts jockeying now towards Central Park. And now the horse starts going through red lights. You know what I mean? (laughs) So now the women in the back of the cab are going, stop this fucking thing. Let us out of here, right? He can't stop. The horse knows, you know, the horse knows he's got no juice. So as they start heading to Central Park, a couple of other handsome cab operators see the runaway horse. And they're like, hey, wait a minute. There goes Bob's horse and carriage. That fucking idiot must have stolen it, right? So they chase. So now you got like a like a, a fucking chariot race going into Central Park. And it was almost like the trotters. One guy with a horse and carriage got in front of the runaway horse and carriage and another one got behind and they were able to slow it down like an old Western. Right. (laughs) So they get it stopped in the middle of Central Park. Right. The two floozies are like, you know, fuck this. They ran off into the woods, never to be seen again. And the handsome cab operators started beating the shit out of El Diablo. Right. (laughs) I'm a cop. You can't do this. Right. Somehow, some way, the handsome cab operator shows up. He wants blood. Now the elbow goes, look, I know I fucked up. Take me to an ATM machine. I'll give you 500 bucks right now. We'll call it a day. 
And that's what he did. And he got out of it. And wow. Oh, this fucking guy. <laughs> he was a lot of fun, but like you were rolling the yeah. dice with your career hanging out with this guy. But he was just fucking fun. <laughs> It's like gambling every time you freaking went and had a beer with him, huh? <laughs> like playing pension roulette. I, I like the old fashioned pit stop. That those guys yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's a good, that was a great stories, man. And that was from dude, what book is that? That's the NYPD's Flying Circus. I gotta get another one. Oh I got man, the Flying Circus one sounds funny. So tell us about some of the stuff you're, uh, you've been doing, you're writing. Yeah, all your books. Right now, I'm writing a book. I should have it out in a month. It's called Confessions of a Catholic High School Graduate. It starts out with me getting chased out of a confessional, which really happened. (laughs) It's just about growing up in the Bronx and being a kid and going through Catholic high school and how it groomed me for adulthood. And, you know, back then it was a different time. There weren't Uh video cameras. And when I was a kid, if the cops caught you fucking around, they'd kick you in the ass and send you on your way home. Same as right. parochial school where you add a line, you get a crack. You know, like people go, wouldn't you tell your father? If I told my father a cop beat me up or a, a, a priest or a brother gave me a smack, the first thing he would ask me is, what did you do? Yep. yep. What does every kid say? I didn't no, do no, anything. Yeah. Nothing. I, I, I was said, sitting but, there. Oh, I know. And I know what my father would say. Fine. I'm going to go find this cop or I'm going to go find this priest. And if his story is more believable than yours, Jesus Christ won't be able to save you. So for me, it was the price. It was, you know, the cost of doing business. You know, I just, right. I learned to suck it up, you know? Yeah. But you were held accountable. That That's lacking these yeah. days. Oh yeah. Oh, it definitely shaped who I am. Uh, in, in one of my books, I've got a story about the early nineties and my part, it was a slow night and we catch these two teenagers spray painting an overpass, like graffiti. <laughs> they were getting smart. So I just went, I gave him a little sprint across the neck. But did you catch shit for that? But like a parent, but like that damn cop. And so, yeah, I gave him a spritz across the neck. So anyway, the parents were pissed off. And I explained to them that their kids could go to jail for the weekend and they'd have to hire a lawyer. So the yeah. two fathers said, can you give us a second? I said, yeah. They walked off the side. They came back. They shook my hand. They said, thank you. We appreciate it. You, you did us a favor. So, you know, those days are over. You can't do that anymore. You know yeah. what I mean? Nowadays, I probably would have been suspended and, you know, taken a heavy hit and they probably would have sued me. But, right. you know, I, like I explained to him, I go, would you rather me put your kid through the system at 16 years old for a misdemeanor? Yeah. That's the thing. I mean, I when I was a kid, I'd much rather get kicked in the ass than hauled into the station house. And, you know, now they're going to start putting paper on you. It's going to follow mm-hmm. you for the rest of your life. Kids Definitely. make stupid mistakes. That's true. That is true. Yeah. So can you tell us all of your, I know you said you had six books and I don't think we've covered all of that. Can you tell all all of your uh, book titles? All right. So my first book is Dickheads and Debauchery and Other Ingenious Ways to Die. It's about the ridiculous things people do to shorten their life expectancy, going to Disney World, (laughs) eating bitch beaters. Um, What's a bitch beater? It's those big fucking turkey legs that they serve Uh, at Disney World. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> not my. I didn't make that up, by the way. Before I catch shit for being a misogynist, <laughs> they call it. You got uh, my second book is NYPD through the Looking Glass: Stories from Inside America's Largest Police Department. Then you got the NYPD's Flying Circus: Cops, Crime, and Chaos. That's the one I want to get. Uh-huh. <laughs> They've all got funny stories in them, and then you got Grand Theft Auto: The NYPD's Auto Crime Division, and that covers the auto theft industry, everything you wanted to know about 
the auto theft industry afraid to ask a car thief's mindset, how they steal cars, how to protect yourself from getting your car stolen, what to look for when you're buying a car that you don't get fucked. It's just it's it's everything about the car industry. Can we pause right there? Because we have a funny story to talk about with a, sure. about stealing cars. So our son just graduated um, two nights ago. It was graduated high school. Graduated, graduated high school two nights Thank ago. You. Yeah. Graduating senior class of 22. 2022 and he's 18 so we've been letting him you know have some freedom all of this this boy drove himself it was at a major university i guess the high schools do that nowadays but he drove himself to his own graduation we're tired it was a long graduation it was raining it was raining we're getting in the parking lot and he calls and he's like mom my truck is gone it i was like Okay, well, where'd you park? He was like, it's just gone. I know it was here. You know, I know I, I know where I parked. And so he's like telling uh, one of the band uh, moms like, hey, my car is my truck is gone. My truck is gone. She he's said, well, is out. there any glass around there? Uh, no, no glass. But I'm 100 percent sure my truck is gone. So he goes to the police. Well, before he did that. He said, I'm 100% sure that I parked here. Yeah. That's the key. Yeah. And then he said, <laughs> the, the, he, he gets the police involved. So the police, the campus police drives up and their lights flashing and everything. By this time, we pour, pulled into where he said he parked. So, and it, I mean, the, you know, this is like tons of cars, traffic getting out of this graduation. And so this policeman has him hop in the car and they're they're trying to get through all this traffic to look for his truck. And he was like, I just don't understand why anybody would steal my truck. I left all of my graduation money in my uh, in my wallet in there. And the policeman saying, yeah, you know, that people will break the glass and do that. Well, I said, honey, let's just go to the next parking lot over. Would you believe <laughs> his truck was sitting there the whole time? I mean, he was freaking out. <laughs> yeah, so Grand Theft Auto almost happened to us, but not. <laughs> but not. That, that happens more than you think. No, you're not done with your oh, books. Oh, you still got more books. I'm sorry. Yeah, you still got more books. No, no, it's fine. And then, and no, no. And then NYPD law and disorder. Yeah. That, that's all six. Five. I got the sixth one out soon. Mm-hmm. When's that coming out? The sixth one? Uh, Probably in about a month and a half. Okay. Not too long. Then where can our listeners get these books? All my books are available on Amazon. They're all my paperbacks are ten bucks and two ninety nine ebook download. Wow. Oh, cool! I bet. And what about your socials? You do do you socials? Any- yes, um, at Vic at Vic Ferrari five zero on Instagram and Twitter, and I have a Facebook page. Just look up Vic Ferrari. Awesome man, and dude, thanks so much for reaching out and coming on the show. This has we been thank you. Thoroughly. I apologize yeah. about the technical difficulties, but you know, it's gotta happen. It happens. Yeah. Yeah. Well, but thank you so much for coming on with us. And, and we've really, really enjoyed this interview because you're so hilarious and we know your books are hilarious too. So if anyone is interested in getting those, we'll put the link up to the Amazon, uh, you know, thank books you for that. Yeah, definitely. In our show notes. Yeah. But we're going to close out right now. Please hang on a second. Vic. Sure. Thank you. With that, we wish you fair winds and following seas. 